as I mentioned earlier, we were, we're kicking off a 12-week study on Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of my favorite Old Testament books. We learn, we learn so much from this guy. Um, we're calling the series Restoration, and, and it's really about uh, looking into how Nehemiah uh, helped through God calling Nehemiah to help restore uh, the temple and the, and the wall around Jerusalem. He was a, Nehemiah was a, an amazing leader. He knew how to handle all kinds of situations uh, through prayer and through um, what God has taught him over the years. Uh, he was an excellent planner, a strategist. He was a great leader of people. He knew how to work with people and how to, how to solve problems with people. He was outstanding at conflict resolution. And when problems came arose, he would, uh, he would deal with them and go into prayer. And he would uh, stand firm in, in what God has called him to do. Uh, he was uh, fought against discouragement and rallied the people. Uh, he had enemies that were coming and they were trying to stop him from doing the work. And he knew how to handle those situations as things got thrown at him. He's a fantastic guy to study. And so hopefully through this message, we're going to uh, learn a tremendous amount uh, from him. Now I gave you a couple weeks ago, I asked you to uh, start preparing for this message, through, uh, reading through Esther and reading through Ezra. Hopefully you did that in preparation. Um, it's, a, it's exciting to go through this book with you. Um, I, I think we're going to learn things personally. I, I hope that you guys learn a lot personally and you'll grow through the series. Um, hopefully you'll learn some, some key things in the Old Testament history. And you'll discover some principles as we move forward in revitalizing Covington Baptist Church, as we, as we move forward in, in our own restoration process here. As you know, we have the 2020 vision, and as we start implementing those things, we're, we're in a, a rebirth period. So I think going through Nehemiah is going to really help us see some of those things, and hopefully you'll, you'll learn a lot through this series. My hope is that as we go through the series... Uh, you'll be motivated to live out our, our mission, which is to reach the community for Christ and to build up the body of Christ. So before we get into the, the first chapter of Nehemiah, I want to give you a little bit of background. It's always important as you study the Bible, it's always important to uh, get some background context, to understand kind of what the situation is. What, who is Nehemiah? What's he doing? Why is he doing any of this stuff? So it's good to get some background. So I'm going to do a real quick history lesson, and then we'll get into this chapter. So starting back in, in Genesis 12, we see that God called Abraham out of the country. He called, uh, Abraham was in his own country, and he called him out, and, his, and Abraham obeyed, and, the, and his family blossomed. It started growing. Then years later, uh, the, the Israelites ended up going into Egypt, and for 400 years, they were enslaved in Egypt. Until, they, until Moses came along and freed them. And God used Moses to free them. And, and then they wandered around the desert being knuckleheads and, and doing their, you know, rebelling against God and complaining. And then they finally, after years later, they were able to go into the Canaan and the promised land. The land of milk and honey. The, the place that God wanted them to be in the first place. Through hundreds of years while they're in Canaan, they, uh, they struggled. They struggled with faithlessness. They, they rebelled against God. They uh, wrestled with God. And, and finally, they got this king. Anybody remember King David? A godly king. He was a good king. And under, king, uh, under David's throne, he, the Israel grew and it flourished. 
And they, they had a good relationship with God. And things were going well. And he had a son named Solomon. Solomon became king. And things went well too for a while. They built this beautiful uh, temple. But then after Solomon died, things started getting bad again. Things started getting getting a little nutty, a little crazy. And the Israel split into two kingdoms. And we have the northern kingdom, which was called Israel. And that was the ten tribes of Israel, if you've heard that term before. The southern kingdom was two tribes. Originally there was twelve, but the two broke off. And they had Judah, which was two, and Israel, which is ten. Because of their disobedience against God, they, God allowed the Syrians to conquer Israel. And that's why we hear uh, the ten lost tribes of Israel. That's because when Assyrians came, they broke up the tribes. He scattered them around. And so the, the Assyrians took over and, and conquered. And the southern tribe, Judah, they looked at what was going on with Israel, and they didn't do anything. Not only did they not help, but they also continued to be disobedient against God. You would think that they were seeing their brothers or kin so going through this, they would maybe, hey, you know what, we've got to get back to God. But they didn't. They looked at him and nothing changed. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army captured the Jews. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was burnt the, uh, or destroyed too. The, the uh, walls or the, the gates were burned. I mean, it was just chaos. And, and they, the people went back into slavery again. They went back in a full circle. They were free. They went enslaved in Egypt. They got free again. Now they're back into slavery. They, they just keep doing this. Imagine the Jerusalem and, the, and, and these Jews' experience, these Israelites' experience. You know, the, it, it must have been a traumatic thing to be taken out of their homes and, their, and the place of worship destroyed. And they, they get moved on over a thousand miles into a foreign country under a foreign leadership and enslaved by them. Many of God's prophets predicted that this captivity would not destroy the nation, and it would eventually end. And the people would be allowed to go back home. Daniel understood this truth when he was reading Jeremiah, when he was reading the prophets. And, and he understood that God did not forsake his people. He allowed the Persians to take over the, ba uh, the Babylonians and moved King Cyrus uh, to, to have a decree to let the Jews return home. In three stages, under Cyrus's leadership, three stages, they were over a hundred years, they, the, per, or the uh, Persians were sending Jews back to their homeland. And, see, and, and after the decree of Cyrus, 50,000 Israelites returned to Judah with Zerubbabel, and they began restoring the temple. They started restoring Jerusalem. But as they did it, as they started going, they, they started getting discouraged and and, and they started getting frustrated and said, oh, we can't do this. And so, so they're in this rubble and, they, and they, they said, oh, they started kind of complaining and they got discouraged and they stopped. So God decided to send them Haggai and Zechariah to go in and start helping them rebuild and help inspire them to keep rebuilding. He sent Ezra to go in and teach them the spiritual side of things. And he became their spiritual leader to help them not, not only just restore, but restore the, the spiritual relationship between the people and God. Finally, Nehemiah tells a story in the 12, 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes that now, by now the Persians became the region's top power. 
The, the Persians became the, the, the powerful people. <clears throat> and the, the commitment of the Persians was to resettle captured people into their native lands. That's what they wanted to do. The Persians had a different attitude about things. So what would happen is these people would, uh, they, the, they would gather these people and they would start sending, they would conquer land and they would send them home. And they really had a lot of freedom. Uh, the people, the captured people, had a lot of freedom under that leadership. What would happen is they, as long as they're paying the taxes and they didn't rebel against the, the government, they had some autonomy. They were able to do their thing. They were able to worship. And so a lot of people decided to stay in their, the lands that the Persians conquered. But Cyrus was sending people home, 50,000. And so that's kind of where we're at now. Now, as we start Nehemiah, God is about to start another movement back to the promised land. And the book follows uh, several kind of breakpoints. In the first six chapters, it's talking about the rebuilding of the wall. Uh, Seven through ten deal with renewing Jerusalem's worship. And the final chapters address the repopulation and revival of God's people. So that kind of gives you an overview. That's kind of what's happened in, in the culture and with the Israeli people. So now we're going to dig into Nehemiah chapter 1. So if you, if, you're, if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Nehemiah chapter 1. It will be up on the screen. And let's read through this, and then we're going to dig in. And I'm excited about this series because I think you're going to get a lot out of it. So let's read. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the, 20th, in the month of Shizlev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they had said to me, the remnant there in the providence who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, From there I will gather them, bring them to the place where I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father God, as we open up your word and we look at Nehemiah and, and, his, and, and this prayer that he did, and this, this heartfelt lament, 
Father God, I ask you to, to listen to our prayers. Open our hearts and our mind today to, as we look into this word and we look at Nehemiah's example. Teach us what you'd have us learn. And we ask the Holy Spirit to be here today, working in the lives of everybody here, and help us understand what you'd have us learn. We love you, Lord, and we thank you so much for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to begin exactly where we should with prayer. That's the first thing that we should ever begin any project with. As we restore, as we look at restoration here at Covington Baptist Church, first thing we need to do is to be in prayer. Every single one of us. Prayer is an overriding theme throughout this book. And it's a secret to Nehemiah's success. The prayer in chapter 1 is the first of 12 different prayers throughout the book. There's prayers of adoration. There's prayers of confession. There's prayers of petition and anguish and joy. Just everything. There's 12 different ones. And, he, and all the different situations that he's in, he prays different types of prayers through there. It's a story of compassionate, persistent, personal, and corporate prayer. Nehemiah's life was filled with prayer. He, was, he loved prayer. He was dedicated to prayer. It was, and, it, and because of his love for prayer, it was obvious outwardly and inwardly. He, the only thing he needed to do when, when he heard this news was to get on his knees and pray. I want to suggest to you this morning that Nehemiah went through a specific process of prayer that has great application and relevance to us today. So that's what we're going to take a look at. We're going to take a look at the, the prayer this prayer. We're going to give you some guidelines on how he prayed and so you can apply it in your own life. So the first place Nehemiah was, uh, where he started was, was a concern with the problem. And that's the first four verses. He was concerned about the problem. Now we see in verse 11 that Nehemiah was a cupbearer. And that was quite the prestigious job. See, he, he, he had royal quarters, he, had, he hung around with a lot of wealthy people, he, was, he had the king's ear, which is quite a big job right there. I mean, forget about the fact that he could die any time by eating this food, but outside of that, he was treated really good. And, and he had this, this cushy job. He hung out in the palace, um, and he had you know, the best clothes and the best of everything. He had in, intimate access to the powers of the kingdom. And yet when one of his brothers returned and, and, and started talking about uh, the, their trip to, to Jerusalem, Nehemiah questioned them about the Jewish remnant. He, as soon as they show, showed up, he, he started questioning them. And, and that word question, it wasn't really, doesn't really adequately explain it. He really demanded. It was like this. this it wasn't they sat around the, the, uh, the you know, coffee table, and oh, hey, how's it going? How's your family? Oh, by the way, how's your trip to Jerusalem? It wasn't that casual thing. It was more of he shows up and he wants to know. He's, he's demanding. What is going on there? You just got back. What's going on? I want to know. I want to know what's going on in Jerusalem and the remnant. It was very intense. And, and even though he had this cushy job, he was very inquisitive about this. He could have left it alone. He had a great life. He could have just said, Hey, how's it going? Oh, that's too bad. And oh, so what do you want to do this weekend while you're visiting? No, he didn't. He was inquisitive and he wanted to know. And then what did he do? He broke down. This is an important starting point. See, it's easy for us to stay uninvolved. 
It's easy for us to be concerned about certain things, but just uninvolved and unaware. Some of us don't even think about stuff that's going on in our lives, and we don't even think about the stuff that's going on in other people's lives. Even though Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem, see, he was raised in this house. He had never been to Jerusalem, but he's heard the stories. He knew his ancestors. And he knew about the ancestors being led away in, in chains. And how Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. And what Nehemiah was doing is what Jeremiah 51.50 says, and he instructed the exiles to remember the Lord in the distant land and think on Jerusalem. See, Nehemiah was doing that. Even though he was far away and never been there, he, he was thinking about the problem. He was thinking about Jerusalem. He thought on Jerusalem and listened to the report. He listened to the report in verse 3 that the survivors were in great trouble and disgrace. That the wall in Jerusalem was in shambles. And the gates were burned. And he imagined, he started daydreaming and imagining just how terrible that was. And he probably thought about it, and, and it just broke his heart. He was broken up because of the complacency of the people. He knew the people were left there or sent there, but, but they gave up. And these people were living in ruins, and they weren't repairing the temple. They weren't repairing the city. And they, just, and they were living in this, this dirt and, and broken down city, and they were content with it. They were just saying okay. They were willing to walk around the devastation instead of being concerned enough about the problem to do something about it. They sat in comfort of a dirty, broken down city. Friends, nothing is ever going to change in your life or life of this church for that matter if we don't first become concerned about the problem. We have to first be concerned about the problem. Some of us have become very complacent in the way things are. And we've, we've learned to just accept certain things. We are living in that rubble. And it needs to bother us. We need to have that desire to be concerned about the problem. Are you ready to have God do some rebuilding and restoration in your life? Or how about the life of this church? When Nehemiah heard this report, he hit the ground and wept. He was so bothered by it, he hit the ground and just wept. We see that in verse 4. And this, this word wept, it wasn't just a, a tear. You know, I, I love the English translations. They don't really hit it as hard as, as what they really mean. I love the, the Greek and the Hebrew language really dis, define, to explains things so much deeper. It means to bemoan or lament. Have you ever been so crushed in your life about something that you just get on your knees and you're just, you're just bawling? I know you men won't admit it, and I know you won't, but I did. Uh, I've gotten to those points in my life where you just get on your knees and you're just crying out for God, help me. That's what he's talking about. He's so distraught and wept. It was just this, this bemoaning and lamenting, crying out. That's what he felt. Much like Jesus did when, in the painful tears when he observed the hard hearts of Jerusalem. We see that in Luke 19. He also fasted. Now, fasting was, was done about once a year in Old Testament times. But we, in, in other research, I found that Nehemiah 
fasted, prayed, and and wept, and um, and was and devoted himself to this for over four months. He was distraught. Okay, if you're praying for something for four months, you're you're really hurting. Do you need some restoration today? Are your defenses broken down such that you allow some practices and some sins to get into your life? Before you can ask God to restore you and rebuild you, you have to first be concerned about the problem. You have to be concerned about the problem. Now, after Nehemiah becomes concerned about the problem, we see um, his conviction about God's character. He expresses his conviction of God's character in verse 5. And Nehemiah calls him the, calls God Lord. And he's recognizing that God is the Lord of the universe. He is, he is the master of the universe. He refers to his Lord as uh, God in heaven. And he goes on, and, and, so, and that's recognizing that he's above all. And he also says he's great and awesome. So that first few words in, in verse 5, he's, he's saying, you know, he's great and awesome Lord, God of heaven. I mean, he's recognizing who God is. And he's saying that in his prayer. He's recognizing, giving credit to him. God deserves to be honored and revered and, and feared by all people, all that know who he is. And finally, Nehemiah describes God as one who keeps his covenant of love. So he recognizes who he is, but then he also recognizes his character, saying that he keeps his covenant. And he's recognizing that. It's kind of like if I'm talking about a friend of mine, he says, you know what? This guy is a great, um, a, a great engineer, and he's very good at what he does, and he's very intelligent. And that's, that's saying something about his skills and stuff, but also he's a man of honor. And so he's recognizing certain personality and certain characteristics. So that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's, he's talking about a little bit about who God is, but also his character and that he keeps his covenant. See, God is faithful and, and can be trusted. He's truthful. Nehemiah's boss is the king. And the, and the king is very powerful and he, he runs the whole kingdom and the empire that they've built. But compared to God, Artaxerxes, the king, is nothing. Nehemiah was in Susa, and his concern was far off Jerusalem, and this, this, both, this town that's in rubble. And both cities, one rich, one poor, one strong, the other weak, one proud, one broken, were like tiny specks of dust in the eyes of God. They were just little. God is so much bigger than that. Friends, if we're going to go to God in prayer, things need to get put in the proper perspective. Nehemiah was convicted of God's character. He knew God was not only able, but willing to respond with power. See, when we go to God, it's not a, God, can you do something? It's more of, will you do it? And because I know you can do it. We need to look at God's character and what kind of, uh, who he is. That's why the next phrase in his prayer is confession of sin. Like Job, he encountered this awesome God and he looked at God's character and said, I am nothing in comparison to him. And that put him in a place of repentance and confession. Job writes in 42, verse 5 and 6, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's Job. So he's heard about God, but then when he sees God and witnesses God and knows his character, it really puts him in the right perspective. 
realizes just how little Job was in comparison to God. After becoming concerned with the problem and expressing a conviction about God's character, Nehemiah is moved to admit the sin, his sin and the sin of his people. We see that in verse 6 and 7. The one thing that to be concerned about the problem, it's one thing to have a concern about a problem, but it's another to take that step of confession. You can have a concern for the problem. You can have a conviction of who God is. But it's a totally different thing to actually confess your sin. Many of us never get that far. We get concerned with the problem. We'll even say, hey, you know what? Jesus is Lord and Savior. But we don't get to that point of confession. Well, our theology might be right. We might have the right understandings. We've been in church a long time. We've been taught a lot of things. We might even have the right perspective, but we, we don't get to that point of genuine, honest confession. Nehemiah boldly asked God to hear his prayer, which literally means to hear intelligibly with great attention. He begs God to listen to him. Now, I, as we read that verse, there's three things I kind of glean from this, three key ingredients about his confession. And I think these are important to write down. You have a little note thing in here. Write these three words in here. Intensity, honesty, and urgency. Intensity, honesty, and urgency. Now, intensity is, see, he was so overwhelmed by what was going on in Jerusalem that there's this intensity, this, this heartfelt sadness for it. And then he got on his knees and he prayed for months. That was intense. And he fasted. And, and, he was, and then when he experienced God, he realized just how, how much him and the people of Israel who rejected him were. So as they did that, as they, as they looked at him, and they, they, uh, as they looked at God, he was convicted. And there was that sense of, sense of intensity. Psalm 88 verse 1 says, O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. That's intense. The second one is honesty. See, he didn't make any excuses for Israel. He didn't make any excuses for himself. You notice he said, we. In those verses, he talked about, we have sinned against you. We have done this. He surveyed the grim record of Israel's past and present failures. And he includes himself in it. He knew that he was not exempt from the blame. He said, we have sinned against you. And that was honesty. When we go into prayer and we're going to confess our sin, we need to be brutally honest. Completely honest. We have to be honest with our sin before God. And the last one is urgency. Nehemiah recognized that sin is not merely a stubborn refusal to obey certain rules, but it's a defiant act against God. It's a rebellion against a holy God. He knows that they have acted very wickedly and he didn't candy coat or sugarcoat the sin. He was honest and, and, it was, and he owned it and he went to it immediately and confessed it. See, that's the thing about when we become, go before God and we get that realization just how awesome and holy he is and how little we are in comparison to him. There should be a sense of urgency to confess our sin. There's a, a story from, about Boeing employees, Boeing aircraft employees. They're, they're uh, employees working on a 747. And these, these guys get this brilliant idea to steal one of the 
rafts. So they take this raft, they steal it out, they get it out the compound, and they go down to a river on the weekend. And they blow it up, hit the cord, and it blows up, not realizing and forgetting that there's an emergency beacon that's on the raft, and when you blow it up, it starts going off. So they're very surprised when a, a Coast Guard helicopter started hovering over them. And they, didn't, they looked up and they didn't realize what they've done. See, we can hide from our sins, but God knows. We can try to hide from it, but God knows. He already knows what's going on. He already knows exactly what you've done in the past. He knows exactly what you've done in the uh, present. And he knows exactly what you're going to do in the future. He knows. Numbers uh, 32.23 reminds us that you may be sure that your sin will be found out. Your sin will be found out. I think it's better to go before God and confess your sin than to be found out later and find it on the front page of a paper or something. Whatever it is. Are you trying to hide a sin today? If you are, confess it. I'd recommend confessing it before God first. And I highly recommend find a trusted believer in Jesus, somebody that can respect your privacy, somebody you trust, and go to them and confess it to another human being. Confess it now. Don't wait. While Nehemiah spends time in broken confession, he doesn't wallow in a prolonged introspective examination of his failures. He owns what he did, and he quickly expresses confidence in God's promises. He has confidence in God's promises. In this part of the prayer, he recalls the words of Moses and the promise that, that God made Moses. And he prayed uh, words. It was a montage of things from Deuteronomy and Leviticus and 1 Kings. This is in verse, verses 8 through 10. Um, Psalms 130. He, he pulls from these Old Testament, script, Old Testament scriptures that he knew of, and he, and he talks about God's promises. So what was the promise that he was getting at? What was the promises that he was referring to? They're twofold. One is, the first is that Israel would, if Israel disobeyed, that they'd be sent to a foreign land. Well, that was fulfilled. That was done. And the second was that when the captivity was over, God would send them back to Jerusalem. And they were still waiting for that to be fulfilled. And Nehemiah prayed, Lord, the first part is true. We've disobeyed and we're in captivity. But Lord, you've made a promise to us. Bring us back home. But that hasn't happened yet. I'm claiming your promise, basically. He's recognizing God's promises. Someone has calculated that there's over 7,000 promises in the Bible. 7,000. And God keeps true to all of them. He doesn't, you know, I mean, if, if he doesn't keep true to one, then, then he doesn't keep his promises, right? I mean, if you violate one promise, you're, you can't really trust in the others. But he keeps all his promises, The better we know the word of God, the better we'll be able to pray with confidence of God's promise. 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. See, he listens. And he wants to work in your life. And he wants to fulfill these promises in your life. But you've got to talk with him. And you have to have confidence in his promises. 
Are you confident in God's promises just like Nehemiah was? If God said it, you can believe it and claim it. Nehemiah knew that God would keep his promise. Even though he's in this foreign land and he knew that we had some people in Jerusalem and they're discouraged, Nehemiah knew God's character and he knew that he would keep his promises. He also knew that even though God did not need his help, he was ready to make a commitment. He was ready to make a commitment to do whatever God needed to help. See, God didn't need his help, but, he, but Nehemiah was willing to do whatever it took. I want you to look at the progression of his prayer. His concern about the problem led to brokenness. Okay? He was concerned about Jerusalem and it led to brokenness. While he was weeping and fasting and praying, he had conviction about who God is. He experienced God. As he focused on the greatness and awesomeness of God, he was quickly reminded of his own wickedness. He was convicted about his own sin and the sin of his people. After owning up to, uh, to his sin and his role in, in, in this nation and, and the, the way the people sinned against God, he boldly prayed with confidence that God would restore the people. As they knelt down before him and turned away from the wicked ways, God would restore them. And then he leads them to a commitment to get involved. We see this in verse 11. It says, O Lord, let your hear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. So he's talking about is he's, he's a cupbearer and he wants to go to the king and, and be helped. He's asking for help from the king, which we'll see next week. And he's asking for success. See, it's been said that prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but God's will done on earth. Let me say that again. It has been said that prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but getting God's will done on earth. He didn't pray for God to send somebody to go help Jerusalem. He didn't say, oh Lord, will you send a team of missionaries out there? No. He said, here I am. Use me. Let me help. He prayed that here I am. I want to do something. He knew that he would have to approach the king and request a three-year leave of absence. So he asked God for success which means to break out or to push forward. He wanted him to God to bless this request and let him go. He wanted to see God break out on his behalf when he goes in front of the king to make this request. He was claiming yet another promise, Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord and he directs it like a water course where he pleases. So Nehemiah was claiming another promise from God that, you know what, ultimately all things that happen and all leadership in this world, kings and presidents and everything, is actually under God's authority. And he can direct it however he wants. A true measure of our concern is whether or not we are willing to make a commitment to get involved. Martin Luther said a great, great quote. He says this, Pray as if everything depends on God. 
Pray as if everything depends on God. Then work as if everything depends on you. George W. Bush had an embarrassing moment with a live microphone when in a private conversation many years ago. It reminds me of a college choir that was all set to do a, a concert at a big church. And they were going to be live on the radio. So this is what happens. When everything appeared to be ready, an announcer made a final introduction and waited for the choir conductor to begin. A tenor was not yet ready, however, so the director refused to raise the baton. All this time, nothing but silence was being broadcast. Growing very nervous, the announcer, forgetting that his microphone was still on and that he could be heard in the church and on the air, said in exasperation, Get on with it, you old goat! A week later, radio, uh, the radio station got a letter from one of his listeners. A man who had, had turned in to listening to the music from the comfort of his easy chair. Then he heard, as soon as he turned it on, he heard, Get on with it, you old goat! Well, he took that message personally. And he had not been doing anything for God's work. And, and this startling message was enough to convict him and get him going again. So I won't call you old goats, but will you get on with it? Can we get going? Maybe you've received that call this morning. Maybe God's telling you to get on with it. See, sometimes we need a wake-up call. Sometimes we need to be pushed. We need that moment. Where are you in this prayer process? Are you concerned about the problem? Maybe your spiritual walk, are you concerned with that? Maybe you're not growing and you've hit a, a stale moment, or what we call dark times, where you just don't have any joy in your, in your spiritual walk. Maybe you hit that. Are you concerned? Maybe you're, maybe you're not where you should be doing ministry or, or serving in somewhere. Maybe you're not serving at all. Are you concerned with the problem? Do you know where you're going when you pass away? Are you going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ? And if you're not, you should be concerned about that problem. Or do you have conviction about God's character? Are you ready to confess your sins? Do you have confidence in God's promises that he will work in your lives and love you and help you and guide you and teach you? Are you ready to make a commitment to get involved in the Lord's work? Where are you in that process? Where are you in this prayer? That's something only you can answer. It really is something only you can answer. You can, you can make the commitment by committing yourself into the restoration time here at coming to Baptist Church. You want to get involved? Get involved. We have a lot of opportunities for you, and we're going to have more. Right now, we need children's ministry people. I have uh, some college age and young married, so I would like to start a, a Bible study for them. We can use a, some teachers. There's things you can do. Contact me. Email me. Text me. Instagram. I don't care. I do it all. But with the technology today, you can get a hold of me and commit yourself to some kind of work. Join us with our vision. Our vision of coming to Baptist Church is reaching, teaching, going. Simple. Reaching, 
the community for Christ, reaching other people, helping them with their hurts and habits and hang-ups, teaching them all about Jesus and helping them grow spiritually, and then going is utilizing our talents, treasures, and time for, to grow the kingdom. Reaching, teaching, growing. Going. Growing, going. Commit yourself to this. See, we're asking God to build his church through prayer and evangelism, through instruction and discipleship and ministry and worship and caring for the community. That's all we're doing. That's what this means. Here's a few ideas that you can do. And again, I'd love for you to write this down. There's three things you can do right now. So write these things down. Pray daily for the leadership of this church. We got a lot of decisions to make. We got things. We're trying to follow God and we're praying regularly. Pray for the leadership, that they make the right decisions, that they understand God's direction, that we have the wisdom to make the right decisions and, and what choices to make, and have the courage to step out and try new things, and have the courage to implement these things, even though some people might not like it, because that's going to happen too. So pray for the leadership. Pray daily on where you can be used by God. Pray how? Ask God to say, okay, God, I will commit myself. Tell me where to go. Give me some direction. Ask him where to serve. And if you're really not sure, go to one of the leaders and we will pray with you and help you find your gifts and your talents and maybe something that you would like because we know what is out there. Maybe your desire is to start up a kinship care group like somebody has started up. Maybe your desire is to do, teach a Bible study. Maybe your desire is to write a blog. You, you don't know. There, sky's the limit, but you've got to use your gifts and talents for God's kingdom. And the last thing is to pray for Allegheny and Bath County. Pray for our areas. Pray for the leadership, the government, the community. Pray that, that this community will open their hearts to God as we go out and we start evangelizing and start witnessing to people. Pray that their hearts get opened up. Pray for the law enforcement. Our law enforcement all around the country is being attacked. Pray for them. Pray for our government to make the right decisions for what's best for this county. Those are three things. Pray for leadership. Pray where you can be used. And pray for our local area. That's simple. That's something that every single person in here can do every single day. It takes 10 minutes. That's something you can do. Folks, it's time. It's time to build. It's time to restore. It's time for God to do amazing things here. It's time to restore Covington Baptist Church. From, to be the vibrant church it can be. I know I hear all the stories about back in the day. Back when Richard was here. Back when Michael was here. I hear it. Wouldn't you like to see this, this church vibrant with kids again? Lots of kids. I know I would. I got five. They need some playmates. So let's restore. But we ha I can't do it without you. The leadership cannot do it without you. It's time to build. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your, for your love and who you are, Lord. 
Thank you for this great example from Nehemiah. His, his concern for the problem and, and going down in prayer and, and weeping and fasting and praying about his people. That heart, Lord, that passion that he had, this love that he had for Jerusalem was, is what drove him to desire to reach out and help Jerusalem and help his people. And he begged you, Lord, he begged you to use him. He didn't pass the buck to other people. He, begged, he, he submitted himself completely to you and said, Lord, use me. Thank you for this amazing example, Lord, and who he is. Thank you so much for that, Lord. Thousands of years later, we're reading this story and we're looking at Nehemiah as such an, a fantastic example of, of submissiveness and humility and love for you and his people. So, Father God, I ask you to help us follow his example. Help us get on our knees. Humble us, Lord. Humble all of us in here. Help us take away the pride that keeps us from getting on the knees and worshiping you for who you are. Father God, help us be humble. Use us. Find, find, lead us. We ask the Holy Spirit to come into each and every person here and convict them and show them where they can be used and where that you would like them to serve. Father God, thank you so much for the people here at this church and their desire to serve you. Thank you for faithful parents like Chris and Corey who want to raise up Hazel in the eyes of you. Father God, we love you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.